you turn with me to the passage on what today's teaching is based, it's also printed in your bulletins. It comes from Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to start with verse 39 this morning. And I'll be reading from select passages. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Verse 54, then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. And this is God's word. We're looking at the life of Jesus during the final hours before his death to give us a time to reflect on the meaning of Easter. And today we're coming to a famous series of passages, the night on which he was betrayed. And here... You see rejection everywhere. Jesus just being rejected everywhere. And, and, and there are three ways in which he was rejected in this passage. Uh, three ways he was rejected, three points. Two of them are going to tell us about our condition, who we are. One of those points is going to tell us about Jesus and our cure, the cure for our condition, who he is, and we're going to see how beautiful he is and how wonderful he is and how glorious he is. First, we're going to look at uh, the first rejection. The soldiers rejected Jesus. What the soldiers do, if you look at the tail end of this passage, verses 63 to 65, the soldiers mocked him until he dies. They mocked him over what? In this passage, we see they mocked him over his claims of being a prophet. Later on, they put a crown of thorns on him, and they mock him over his claims of being a king. And when he's on the cross, the crowd and all the people there, they're mocking him about his claims of being a savior. You know, if you saved other people, save yourself. They say, come down, let him save himself. So you've got to look at the range of the mockery here. 
In verse 48, it's his friend, Judas. In verse 50, you see the servants. Verse 52, the temple guards, but also the chief priests and, and, the, and their masters and the, and the elders. In essence, what do you see here? The Jews are mocking him. The Romans are mocking him. You see servants and their masters, commoners and the elite, the low class and the high class, the crowds, everybody is mocking Jesus. In other words, everybody was involved. Everybody was involved in Jesus' death. Every possible class, every possible race, everybody was in on it. So what we're saying is what? What's this text saying to us? We're all involved. We're all involved. You can't pin the death of Christ. You can't pin the crucifixion of Jesus on just one type of person. Everybody here is in it. That's what this text is saying. And there's the irony because when they blindfolded Jesus, they hit him and they said, if you're really a prophet, tell us who hit you. And the irony is this, that as they're trying to disprove Jesus' identity as a prophet, they were actually fulfilling Luke chapter 18, just a few chapters before, when Jesus actually says, I will be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock me. They're going to insult me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to flog me. They're going to kill me. He predicted everything. He predicted it all. So they were kind of playing right into that prediction. So through the mockery, through the brokenness of that mockery, they actually proved and affirmed who Jesus actually was. In fact, you don't even have to go a short while back in Luke 18. You can go all the way back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah predicted God's suffering servant. And he says, you will be offered back to I will be offered back to those who beat me. I will not hide my face from their mocking and their spitting. Why are they mocking? Why are they mocking Jesus? They're basically saying this. You can't be a prophet. Why? Because prophets, they're sent by God. Prophets, because they're sent by God, they should be protected. It's their worldview that says, if you're really sent by God, God would protect you. God would be good to you. Remember Elijah? Elijah in the Old Testament, one of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament. King Ahab, evil king. King Ahab wanted Elijah killed. He sent soldiers to arrest Elijah. And here's Elijah at the top of the hill. And Elijah says this, if I'm a man of God... May fire come down and consume all of you. And it did. Fire came down, consumed everybody. Everybody died. Elijah says in front of the prophets of Baal, in front of the people and the prophets of Baal, he says uh, they were worshiping a false god here. He said, if my God is real, if our God is real, may fire come down and consume this altar. And it does. God heard and the other prophets, they're trying to get their God's attention, but their God wouldn't answer. And so what happened? In the end, all the prophets of Baal, they were destroyed. But in Jesus' case, not a word. There's silence. They slapped him. They hit him. They mocked him. No response. No fire. They're saying, if you're a man of God, God would never let something like this happen to you. This is a mockery. If you're a man of God, why would God send somebody who is so weak? Nothing good can come from this kind of suffering. God never would work through this kind of suffering. So as a result, you can't be a prophet. Now, we say that all the time. 
But before we get to that, think about this. They said, you can't be a prophet because bad things are happening in your life. You can't be a prophet because God would never work through this kind of brokenness. And yet, he was. He was a prophet, the ultimate prophet. In other words, to them, Jesus' weakness is what discredited him. When in actuality, his weakness is what affirmed him. What, I, what we identify with. The cross, on the cross, we say, there were people standing around when Jesus was being crucified on the cross, and they said, this is senseless, absolutely senseless. What good could come from this? Nothing good can come from this. God can't work through this, so he can't be a savior. And so they mocked him. They told him, if you're truly who you say you are, come down, save yourself. Jesus didn't fit into their expectations of the Savior, and so as a result, they missed the Savior, and as a result, they missed salvation altogether. Do you see that? How do we apply it? How do we apply this in our lives? In verse 53, to the people who came to arrest Jesus, Jesus says something at the end. He says this. He says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. Now, he was clearly not talking about the fact that it was because it was nighttime. He was clearly not talking about physical darkness. In fact, if you look at that passage, the concept of darkness and confusion or, or not knowing but thinking that you know, that runs all the way through this passage. What Jesus is saying here is that there is a natural blindness in our lives. There is a natural spiritual blindness. It's our condition. We are naturally blind And as a result, there's darkness in our lives all the time. We see suffering. We see oppression in our lives. We see death. We see our own suffering, our own brokenness. So what do we say? Because I'm suffering and God has done nothing to help me through it, there must be no God. Is that good logic? Is that really good logic? Is that a good, that's not even wise nor intelligent to think that way. Because I can't see a good thing coming from it, there must be no good thing. Because I can't see it, It must not exist. Is that good logic? We see suffering in our lives, and if we don't say it, we're actually acting that way, we're functionally acting that way, what are we saying? Where is God? When I'm I'm so broken, where is God in all this? Where is God when when I'm suffering the way I'm suffering? We, We tend to do that. What we're doing is we're mocking. We're like the soldiers. We're mocking God. And yet Jesus was doing exactly what was designed, exactly what he planned. Here's another way we mock Jesus. We see the beauty of Jesus. We hear about the glory of Jesus. We hear about this every week. But if you continue to functionally live life as if you're the one that's in control, what are you saying? You're not king. If you don't obey the word of God, God says, hey, this is how you were designed. So if you don't live in accordance with the way you were designed, your life is going to break. You're going to break things in your life. And when we disregard that and just pursue what we want and pursue what we desire, what are we saying? You are not a prophet. This isn't prophetic to me. I'm going to follow my thoughts, my wisdom, my way. We're mocking Jesus, right? We're saying you're not God or you're not present. We're mocking him. Just because life is dark, just because life is stormy, and it is dark often, and it can be stormy often, and you can experience darkness for a long time, does that mean there is no sun? Does that mean there are no stars? Does that mean there's no light? Because it will pass. One day the clouds will lift. They'll pass. 
And so we're called to obey, even in the midst of our suffering. It's almost like being ready, because one day the storm does pass, and when it passes, you're there. You see that? If you look at Jesus on the cross, everything's going wrong. People are filled with doubt. And, and uh, he's broken, and he's being mocked, and people say there's no way. There's no way that God could be with Jesus. And yet what happened? God used that brokenness so that his greater greatness and even greater glory would come from it. God can take the senselessness in our lives, the suffering of lives, because he took the senselessness of the death of Christ and the suffering and the death of Jesus, and he turned it into something great, the greatest thing for the world to behold. And that's just only going to be a picture of what he will do at the end of time. Do you see that? And that's a promise of his. That's his promise. The reality is when we experience darkness, we oftentimes give up so easily and we don't trust. And as a result, we're mocking God just because you don't see God working. It doesn't mean that God's not present. If you don't change in the heart, you're going to die. Right? That's about as straightforward as you can say it, right? The soldiers rejected Jesus. The second point is the second rejection. The disciples rejected Jesus. In verse 47, <clears throat> Judas, one of the twelve, he was leading them. <clears throat> he approached Jesus to, uh, to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? What does that mean? One, scholars all agree, all the scholars agree that this was an act of independence because culturally, here's the context, in the ancient times, in an encounter, a disciple would never greet his teacher first. He would never approach the teacher first. It was an act of disrespect. It's almost like saying, when you do that, what you're basically saying is, you and I were equals. So I can, I can advance. I can initiate. What's happening here? Judas' kiss. It's on one hand a signal to arrest Jesus, but he really intended it to be an insult because what, we're saying, what he's saying here is, I'm independent of you. I'm an equal. And so what Jesus, Judas is saying is, Jesus, you are no better than me. We are the same. It's an act of independence. But secondly, it's an act, it's a, it's an act of betrayal. It's a betrayal of their relationship. It's a betrayal of intimacy. What is a kiss? When you kiss someone, what are you doing? You know what? You'd never kiss somebody that you're not intimate with. It's an act of intimacy, an act of friendship at the least. But in this case, this is an ironic kiss from a friend who intended to betray him. There's nothing worse. At this age, you must all know. You must have all experienced it. I've experienced it. There's nothing worse than being betrayed by your friend. Right? Psalm 55. If my enemy were insulting me, then I could bear it. But this is my companion. This is my close friend with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship. And the psalmist goes on to say, with whom I served in worship. This is my friend, my companion. The more someone loves you, the more someone cares for you, if they betray you, it's a greater betrayal. We'd all agree. It's a greater pain. It's a greater agony. If your friend lets you down, it's a greater agony than someone you don't know. If your friend lies to you, if your friend cheats on you, the closer you are, the deeper the pain. The deep, the greater the pain. Let me illustrate this for you. 
<clears throat> I'm going to do my best to go as quickly as possible here with these illustrations. Let's say after service, somebody here I don't know. I hear somebody say, you know, I can't stand that preacher. Every time I come here, I can't stand this guy. In fact, I can't stand this church. I'm leaving. I feel bad. I feel bad for you. I feel bad. But it wouldn't last that long. I'll be honest with you. It's not going to last because I don't know you. I don't know you. You don't know me. You don't know this church very well. It's Philadelphia. We live in a big city. We live in a very consumer-based city, a consumer-based society. But let's say somebody I've known for decades says, I can't stand that preacher. I can't stand Metro. I'm leaving. Ooh, that's a lot harder to take. That's, that, I'll be honest with you. That's, uh, you might have thicker skin than me, but that, that'd be tough to take. Now, look what's happening in this text, in this passage. Something much greater than that. Something much worse than that. And this is sin. Sin is betrayal against someone who loves you and cares for you the most. The person who loves you the most is the person you hurt the most. That's what sin is. Very simply put. Imagine you're married. If you're not married, imagine you're married. After you're married, uh, you fall very sick. Very, very sick. Deathly sick. You're in bed. You're bedridden. So your spouse just dedicates their time to care for you. Day in, day out. They work all day to sustain a living. They pay all the bills. They take care of all the struggles and the, and the troubles. They clean. They clean you up because you're in bed. And they cook all, all the meals. And they feed you. They nurture you. They support you. And they quietly go into a closet and they cry because they just sometimes, there are times when they're just so choked by the pressure. But they come out and they want to be there for you. And they support you. And, and, um, and uh, they want to nurture you to health, and they're praying for you constantly. And they're sacrificing all the daily pleasures of life so that you would be healthy. And this goes on not one, not two, not, not three years, but 20 years, let's say this happens. Every day they're praying for you, and they say, I have no regrets. I have no regrets meeting you. I have no regrets marrying you. They just want you to get better, and one day you actually get better. You actually do get better. You owe your life to your spouse. But what do you do? The day you get out of bed and you say, ooh, I can finally live my life, you clear out what's left in that bank account, what little there's left, because you're just barely getting by. You scrape together what's left, and you take off. You just leave. You don't call your spouse for two years, three years, four years. You just disappear. And one day, you show up at the door, Your spouse opens the door. They're incredibly surprised. What do you do? You kiss your spouse on the cheek, and you say, I'm back. Let's live life. Is everything okay? Is everything good? I mean, you feel that, right? Nothing's okay. Everything is not okay. Your spouse would say, how dare you just walk up here like this? And and then you say, well, come on. You know I love you. You know I love you. We're married. You know, you know I love you. And they say, well, why did you come back? And you say, well, I ran out of money. I need some money. What would you say? I don't know how you'd say it, but you'd say something like this. You'd say, well, you say you love me, but I don't think you realize what you did. It hurt me like you wouldn't even know how much it hurt. 
That's what you'd say. What you did, I don't know who you are. Now there's this wall, this gap that is so wide between us. It's almost like our marriage was fake. Our marriage is so broken. You hurt me, and now and then you come back, and you're using me, and you're taking advantage of me, and you're taking me for granted. That hurts even more than you just taking off. How would you respond? What would you say? You'd say, why are you being like this, let's say? What right do you have to speak into me like this? And then you'd say, what right do I have? You are my spouse. And if you haven't figured out how a marriage is supposed to work, your life is going to end up, if you don't know how relationships are supposed to work, your life is going to end up a bigger mess, and you're already on your way. Now, if there is a God, some of us here are skeptical that there is a God. If there is a God, then he sustains us and gives us everything we need. When we are down, he's there. Every joy you experience, he's present. Every sorrow, he grieves. He's present. And he sustains us day to day. You might, not, you might feel incredibly weak, but that little strength you have, he sustains that strength. He gives you that strength. And basically what he's saying is, you know, because what we do, what we do is we take advantage of him. When we suffer, we use him. Our prayers are generally prayers where we use God, take advantage of God, take him for granted. And when things go wrong, we kind of drop in, right? We peck him on the cheek because we need some spiritual currency in our lives. I've heard many people call me and say, I need a God shot from you today. That's what we say, right? And mainly what we do uh, is we're taking advantage of him, we're using him. So we pray, we go to church, we try to clean ourselves up a little bit. Now, if God is an impersonal God, none of this would really matter too much. But Isaiah 49, you know what Isaiah 49 says? Your maker is your husband. That's what Isaiah 49 says. Hosea, the book of Hosea, he says, this land is guilty of the vilest adultery. You know what that means? We're married. Your, your maker is your husband, and you have committed the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. And yet, he says, you have destroyed yourself. Because you don't know how this relationship works, your life is going to become a mess, and it's becoming a mess already. You have destroyed yourself, but you know what God says? I will redeem you. God uses marital love, almost like a metaphor but something more infinitely deep than just marriage. He says, your maker is your husband since birth. Your maker is your husband since your birth. I'm tied to you. I've tied myself to you. I'm married to you. He says, that's me. My heart is so bound up with you. I've chosen my heart to be bound up with you so that when you do these things, you're actually trampling on my heart. That's what he's saying. Now, if you did this, if you did this to your spouse, right, that's betrayal. You broke, the heart of your, uh, you broke the heart of your spouse, and that is sin, the ultimate betrayal. Sin is not just breaking rules. We look at it as like, oh, man, I, I, I kind of broke this rule. Sin is not breaking rules. Do you think when you get in an argument, when you hurt your spouse, when you hurt your best friend, you think it's because you just didn't do something you were supposed to do? Is that what they're angry about? You have broken their heart. That's what you've done. 
It's a betrayal of intimacy. All sin is an act of independence apart from God and a betrayal of intimacy with God. You're saying on one hand, we're equals, so I don't need you. And on the other hand, what you're saying is, I'm using you, taking advantage of you, taking you for granted. I'm trampling on your heart. It's a betrayal of intimacy. Right before this passage, right before this passage that we've read today, Jesus tells his disciples, one of you will betray me. How do they respond? It's not like they were like whispering to each other, you know, I think it's him. Because from the day he came onto this team, he's been shady. You know, it kind of looks shady. Look at his beady little eyes. I knew it. That's That's not what they, you know what they said to him? Was it me? Is it me? That's what they said. In other words, they didn't know. They were all alike. They were all intimate with Jesus. Not a single person said, I think it's that guy. Because if they knew, they would have killed him. They would have attacked him. They didn't know. In fact, they were like, is it me? We're all alike. Judas was no different than anyone else. And what that means is the darkness. We're blind to ourselves, blind to our sin. All the while, we're using God, taking advantage of God, taking God for granted, betraying our intimacy with God in acts of independence every day, every moment, every decision. We're not centering our lives around our relationship with God, and that is our blindness. That is our condition. The person who loves you the most is the person you're trampling, whose heart you're trampling on, you're betraying the most, the person you're hurting the most. How do you address it? What's the cure? That's the third rejection, the third point. We have the first point, the soldiers rejected Jesus. They mocked him. We're all involved. We're mocking him. The second point, we said the disciples are rejecting Jesus. We're all spiritually blind to ourselves and our sin. All the while, we're trampling, betraying Jesus, uh, betraying our intimacy with Jesus, and declaring acts of independence in every moment, every decision, every, every uh, milestone, oftentimes in our lives, not centering our lives around him. The third thing is the Father rejects Jesus. In verse 39, Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. It was his usual place where he would go to pray. And uh, verse 40, on reaching that place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, yours be done. That's what he says. And an angel from heaven, then, so he's praying, and he's, he's dialoguing with the Father, and he senses the cup, and he says, take it from me. Not my will, yours be done. In other words, I will obey. I will obey your will. And an angel from heaven in his anguish comes down, appears to him, strengthens him. And then verse 44, it says that he's in anguish. He's in anguish. And so he prays more earnestly. And even then in his prayer, there's sweat, like drops of blood falling to the ground. You know that word anguish? is the Greek word agonia. It means agony. Jesus is in agony. Now, that sounds, well, why did he say this? Why is that important? It's the only place in the Bible where that word is used. That's why. Jesus is experiencing here something so unique. And that pain is so crushing and so agonizing. It's the only place in the Bible where the word is used. 
Jesus is in agony. It's an otherworldly agony. It's not the kind of agony we experience daily. Jesus is experiencing such a unique agony, such a significant agony, so much that there's blood in his sweat. We call that hematridosis. It's an actual thing. Doctors will tell you that it's rare, but it actually can happen. Why? It happens in cases where there's shock. Jesus is in utter shock. What could he be talking about with his father that would place him in utter shock, so bad that an angel had to come and strengthen him, and then there's anguish. He's praying. He's in agony. An angel comes down to comfort and strengthen him. He prays. He's in greater agony. And then the blood in his sweat. He's in shock. In Mark, in the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark, Jesus says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. You know what that means? So let's put this together. In this narrative, here's Jesus, he's praying. And he's saying, I'm being crushed right now. I'm experiencing the crushing weight. I'm experiencing the, something so horror, horror, I'm just horror stricken. Something so horrible, so bad that I'm dying before I actually die. He's experiencing the death before he dies. So bad that an angel had to come and strengthen him. What could be so bad? Now think about this. Throughout history, martyrs had come and martyrs had gone. Throughout history, martyrs had died. They were torn apart by lions, used as candles to light fires. I mean, you see some horrible things that these, uh, that these martyrs had gone through after the death of Christ. And they did it singing. They did it praying. They did it almost seemingly, at least from what I've read, joyfully. What could be so bad? Because it could have, it, it must not just be death. Death must not have been the main issue. What troubled Jesus so much? And that's what makes this passage unique. That's what makes this agony so important. Think about this. The agony, the shock, the crushing weight. The blood came after the angel. Came after he was praying. Why? Because it's not just about death. Clearly, it's not just about death. And scholars across the spectrum, liberal, conservative, they'll all say this. The agony is in knowing before he was even betrayed that he would experience hell. That he would experience hell. What does that mean? Jesus goes in to pray. He comes out in horror. And it's because he says, Father, if you are willing, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. In other words, Father, if it's your will, don't let me drink this cup. What's the cup? Throughout the Old Testament, the cup always represents justice, the justice of God, the wrath of God. In other words, on one hand, it meant that uh, we're meant to be with God. We're designed as people to be with God. We're created in his image. We're created as image bearers of God. So we need his presence. We need his presence for our lives. We need his presence uh, for our decisions. We need his presence moment by moment in every decision, every moment in our lives, in our thoughts, as we're thinking. To be, to be cut off from that presence of God, to be cut off in relationship with God, that is the ultimate agony. That is hell. Hell, it's not, you know, I used to think hell is just this giant oven, you know, we're going to suffer, it's going to be painful, and it may be, but 
the ultimate agony of hell is what? There's no presence of God. You were completely separated from God. That's what hell is, the ultimate separation from God. That is the ultimate agony. Think about, think about your life, every decision, every thought, every action, and God is no longer present. You may not even be relying on the presence of God right now in your decisions, but God is present and he is patient. That's his graciousness. You're still alive because God is a gentle God. One day that gentleness comes to an end. One day that patience comes to an end. There will be no more God in your thoughts. No more God in decisions. No more God in your moments. No more God in your actions. No more God in the weather that's sustained by God. No more God in your daily doings. No presence of God. You have an enemy that rejects you. That's worse. That's, that's nothing compared to a friend that rejects you. That's nothing compared to your spouse if she rejects you or he rejects you. And that's infinitely less than when God himself rejects you. Now, if God rejects me, that's terrible. But if the Father rejects Jesus, their relationship is infinitely greater than any... There's no marriage, no friendship, no relationship that remotely even comes close to comparing to God's relationship with his own son. There's no greater love... There is no oneness that is so intimate, so deep than the relationship between God the Father and his own son who is made as the exact representation, the radiance of God's glory. And so to lose that, to even get a foretaste of that, and that's Jesus here in Gethsemane. That's Jesus at the Mount of Olives praying. That's the cup. And he's choking on it. It's making him sick blood mixed in with a sweat he's dying before he even dies why did he do it why did he do it friends because he loved the father though he be betrayed he would never betray his father philippians chapter 2 says jesus is in very nature god he did not consider equality with god something to be grasped In other words, Jesus' kiss is a genuine, intimate kiss with the Father. I will never betray you. To the end, though you reject me, I will never betray you. Look at the obedience of Jesus. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Look at the love of Jesus. Always submissive to his Father. Not my will, yours be done. He's in agony. Not my will, yours be done. He's obeying the Father. You see, all the way back in the, in the book of Genesis, in the garden, scholars will tell you the parallel. God tells Adam, I want you to obey me regarding this tree. If you obey me regarding this tree, don't eat, you're going to live. But Adam failed. Adam didn't obey. And yet he still lived. Why? Why was he still allowed to live? Because centuries later, there was a second Adam, Jesus, is in the garden. And Jesus, in his garden, God says, I want you to obey me regarding this tree, the cross. And Jesus did, but he died. The first tree, God tells Adam, obey me, you will live, but he disobeyed. The second tree, God says to Jesus, obey me and you will die. And he obeyed all the way. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Look at the obedience of Jesus. 
God said, obey me and I will abandon you, reject you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, I will forsake you. You will experience complete separation from me. I will forsake you. You will experience hell on the cross, infinite death, infinite sorrow, infinite pain because our relationship is more intimate than any other relationship. Your pain will be more great. Your pain will be infinitely greater than anyone could ever experience in hell. And that's the agony that he was experiencing. That's the blood. The blood before the blood even came. And he obeyed. He obeyed. Why did he do it? On one hand, he already had the honor of the Father. He already had the glory of the Father. He already had the love of the Father. What could he possibly gain by enduring and being faithful to God in this? What could he possibly have gained that he did not have before? And you know the answer. He would gain his people, you. You were what he has to gain. You already had the love of the Father. He would gain you. That's the gospel. He would have a reconciled relationship between God and his people. In Luke chapter 23, when he died, what do you see? At the crucifixion, at the cross of Christ, darkness has come over the land. There's the darkness. Darkness reigned. Why? Because Jesus Christ took the physical darkness because he was taking our ultimate darkness. Jesus Christ was taking the penalty and the consequence of our sin, our betrayal against the Father. And so he died in the darkness. He died lonely. He died alone. He died absorbing the full wrath of the cup, the full wrath of the penalty of our sins, the full wrath of God. He absorbed the full wrath of God. He suffered total separation from God. Why? So that we would have the light of God. We would have the presence of God. We would have the love of God. We would have the embrace of God. We would have the true kiss. Remember, you know the story, the narrative of the prodigal son? He deserved the wrath of the father, and yet when he came to the father, what did the father do? Was he like this, tapping his feet? No. He ran to his son, and he embraced him, and he kisses him. The genuine kiss. That's what we get. Jesus got the kiss of betrayal so that you would have the reconciled kiss of intimacy with God. Do you see that? That's the gospel. To the degree that you believe that, to the degree that that moves you, your own spiritual confusion, your own spiritual blindness, your own spiritual darkness will lift. You will be able to see yourself, the condition of who you are and your ultimate betrayal against the Father and you will see the cure for that betrayal is the cross of Christ and his dying and absorbing the full wrath, the penalty for our sins. Do you see that? I'm going to say something very quickly and generally. There are people here that are spiritually struggling. And I'm going to say that some of you are very well-educated. Some of you are very wealthy. Some of you are married. You have children. You have wonderful homes. The point is this. Having those things, pursuing those things, did it cure your spiritual struggle? Pursuing those things, has that taken you one step further in curing your spiritual loneliness, your spiritual sickness, your blindness? Has it helped you open your eyes to see your sin anymore? Has it done that? Some of us here are very, very well-versed theologically. You read a lot of books, but you're still struggling spiritually. 
and you're afraid to tell people because then it makes you look, it's the one thing you got. I know more. And that's what's killing you because you're failing to admit the thing that's actually killing you because you think that's the thing that's going to make you when it's actually the thing that's preventing you from actually being remade. Do you see that? You're failing to admit, you're failing to give in to the one thing that you need, the love of Jesus that leads to repentance. How are we lifted from our anxiety and our suffering and our loneliness, our agony? You know, that agony is just a mere taste. It's just a mere taste of the cup. We'll never experience the full wrath of God. Jesus already paid it. And so, you know, what we're going through, that agony that we're experiencing, rather than complaining about the agony, rather than trying to run from the agony, rather than trying to prevent the agony, that's why we want to be educated. That's why we want to get wealthy, right? That's why we do that, to protect ourselves. It is a false protection, a false shield, because you will never, you are never in control. You know what you are? You are a rudderless ship, a rudderless lifeboat, in the middle of a stormy ocean. What you have as your anchor is all you've got. With Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm until he guides me home. Now, there's a lot more that I want to say, but I'm going to cut it short here. I'm going to end it here, okay? I'll say this. Uh, Peter's darkness lifted. Peter betrayed. He denied Jesus three times. We see that in this text. I wanted to go into it. But what's the difference between Judas, who eventually hung himself, betrayed Jesus, hung himself. Peter betrayed Jesus three times. Three times. And the third time, Jesus looked at him, and it says he remembered. You know why? He remembered what Jesus said. You know what Jesus actually said to him? He said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. But I prayed for you, Peter. And what he's really saying, I'm going to paraphrase what he's saying. I prayed for you. And one day, you're going to come back. And you're going to become great. In other words, that's like saying this. You, my best friend, will hurt me deeply. But I will never give up on you. I will never give up on you. I will always be faithful until you get there. That is the faithfulness of God. That is what will lift you when you are guilty and downtrodden and beating yourself up because you keep messing up. That is the only thing that will lift you out of that darkness. That is the only thing when you're in the midst of sinfulness that will bring you back when you remember that God is not there ready to hammer you, ready to club you, but with open arms ready to embrace you because he has paid the price. He has received the hammer of the wrath of God already so that you would receive the grace of God. That's the only thing. It happens through repentance. I wish we could go into it, but I'm going I'm to end it here. Friends, if the gospel is in you, nothing you endure, nothing you agonize over will ever ruin you. I read somewhere that 97% of pastors, 97% of pastors have been betrayed and falsely accused by their most trusted friends. You know that? You understand betrayal. I understand betrayal. If you have the gospel, you will be able to handle any darkness in your life. Any darkness in your life. You can have hope. You can have joy. And as we come to the table, we're going to be taking of the cup. 
but it's not the cup of wrath. You know what that is? It's the blood that has been spilt. We can take the cup. It's a cup of renewal. It's the cup of recommitment. It's the cup of God's covenant and his promises for the very people. Jesus was serving these people knowing that they would betray him. So we as his betrayers can come, can come approach the table and dine with him intimately. That's what it is. It's the cup of reestablishing intimacy. Let's do that now, shall we? Let's pray together.